Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. A couple of great interviews coming up. Byron York, who broke uh, this Clinton connection to the Trump dossier. He was all over this early and still is, and he'll tell you things you didn't know. And then second, David Gerlerter, professor at Yale and one of us on Trump, artificial intelligence, and the future of America. Yeah, that will be worth your time. I'm going to share my thoughts on um, President Trump's opioid address from yesterday. I'd like to do that just, um, well, just by, by looking at some pieces of the talk and commenting and then telling you something I'm worried about in this whole, um, this whole realm, this whole domain, this whole conversation about opioids. But first, a couple of very brief thoughts on a few things of uh, interest. Uh, Fats Domino, uh, <laughs> fat, the fat man, I'm going to New Orleans, uh, yeah, yeah, la, la. Um, yes, it's me and I'm in love again, Bull Weevil, of course, Blueberry Hill. He was one of the greats. And um, we'll miss him. I guess we've been missing him for a while in terms of his presence, but uh, he was one of the giants of rock and roll. Second, boy, this uh, Harvey Weinstein thing has just uh, enveloped a lot of people. It's an octopus. I don't mean that in the kind of pun way about, you know, all the tentacles, all the grabbing, but uh, a lot of people caught up in it. Mark Halperin, um, Chris, were you as surprised as I was to read that? I was very surprised. Uh, someone I think who you've sat next to at the on the Morning Joe set several times. Kind of a button-down guy, you know, respectable. I always thought he was pretty fair-minded as they go. Uh, fair-minded, at least in the company of morning, the rest of the morning joke crowd. But, man, you know, they just he's stepped down now. He's, he's been released from NBC temporarily, maybe longer. And um, I guess confessed to, uh, admitted to groping a lot while he was at ABC. And I, I guess his contract is broken for what's his show, The Circus, and third edition of the book that he and Heilemann do. What is it? Uh, Game, Game Change. Yeah. Game Changer. Pretty famous political stuff. So let's see who else it envelops. I noticed one person enveloped. And I, 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 of course, take charges seriously, but this thing with President George Herbert Walker Bush, this uh, woman saying that she groped him, this was in 2015 or 14 when he was 90 years old from his wheelchair. Um, okay, uh, maybe so. Um, I imagine that, well, I, I don't know. It just, let's, let's keep the serious charges um, out there and ones that may not be quite so serious. Let's, you know, let's, let's keep under wraps. I'm not saying this one is, but... It's a different deal when a you know a guy who's in a position of power like I, uh, the TV producer in his forties or fifties, is uh, pushing women up against the wall. And when a ninety-year-old president in the wheelchair is maybe patting patting you on the back, I'm not supposed to. I understand, but I believe there's a distinction there. Anyway, this thing will go on, and we will see more people caught up in it, and. Um, you know, their right to resign, their right to step down. Women should not have to put up with this. Um, I hope people do not go too far. I hope it is still possible to pay a compliment to a lady. Um, and I hope we don't, you know, make relationships so difficult. A friend of mine said, I wonder what you think of this, Chris. A lot of people are just going to not hire attractive young women out of the risk and fear. Do you think that's possible? I 
maybe. I hope that's not the result. Maybe yeah, they no, could yeah. maybe they could scrutinize some men more uh, strictly before they hire them, um, or, make or watch them closely. What's yeah. expected of them and whatnot. Yeah, maybe. exactly. But this could uh, you know this could have the effect of hurting women, attractive young women. Sorry, which, yeah. which would be terrible. Yeah, um, be a terrible consequence. But in in this discussion, I'm curious what you think. I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here, but in this discussion, don't you think that there's someone needs to stand up and make an appropriate defense of maybe sexual ethics um, in the larger context? I mean, there's just, I think, there's so much at stake here between cultural signals and how we should respond appropriately. And it just seems to me there's room for a defense of Christian sexual ethics. Someone said, look... Um, people like Mike Pence who got mocked for not going to yep. dinner without yep. his wife if he's going with another woman, yeah, sure. um, for not meeting with other women by himself one-on-one. He was mocked widely mm-hmm. for that, and yet you don't hear these stories about people like Mike Pence. Yeah, no, I think it uh, could open up such a discussion. And, um, you know, I wonder you know, if the people were so shocked and horrified by all this and are you know bringing these guys down left and right um would accept you know some of the thoughts from the perspective of christian ethics you know yeah would they be open minded about that don't know one other thing i noticed uh, you and i did not talk about this before the show this morning did you notice anticipated third quarter growth was 2.5% that's actually 3% yeah it was ticked upwards yep Ticked upwards, and this despite the hurricane stuff, which uh, everybody thought would cut into the third quarter growth significantly, but it didn't. So that's another good sign, isn't it? Great sign, yes, especially considering the hurricane, because you actually look at the jobs report, we lost some jobs because of the hurricane. So the fact that we lost some jobs, but we still have 3% growth, I think is a, a great sign of the strength of the economy. All right. Well, listen, I want to get on to the opioid stuff because uh, we've got a great show today. Uh, David Galerner, Byron York, and um, the president's remarks yesterday were, I thought, very, very good, very strong. Did you notice General Barry McCaffrey, who was Bill Clinton's drug czar? I didn't think particularly effective drug czar. I know him. He's a decent guy. But um, called uh, President Trump's remarks uh, magnificent. This was Clinton's drug czar said that. I thought they were very strong. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to cut number one about uh, this epidemic, epidemic being a national health emergency. This epidemic is a national health emergency. Unlike many of us, we've seen and what we've seen in our lifetimes, nobody has seen anything like what's going on now. As Americans, we cannot allow this to continue. It is time to liberate our communities from this scourge of drug addiction. Never been this way. We can be the generation that ends the opioid epidemic. We can do it. Okay, I love that call to confidence. We can do it. Yes, we can do it. Um, I don't want to be picky on this, but I guess I will be picky since I was the first drug czar. When he ends by saying we can do it, we can do it, we have done it. We've done it before. We did it before uh, in the 80s and 90s. We brought drug use down by about 60 70%. Um, there were something like um, 15% of the population in 79 was uh, using an illegal drug. By the time we got to 92, it was, what, 6%, Chris? Something like right. that. Right, right. Those are the numbers. Yeah. So it can be done. You can push back against this, and I think the president 
laid out the various uh, ways. Think of the, um, it was a very popular figure at the time, think of the half-filled balloon, the balloon filled halfway with air, and you press against it, and, um, you know, it, uh, it uh, uh, you know, the air goes to wherever you're, part, you're not pressing. But press at all points at all times, and uh, you'll see that uh, it, uh, uh, it it stays flat. So you got to work all you got to work all fronts of this. All right, let's go to cut number two. The U.S. Postal Service and the Department of Homeland Security are strengthening the inspection of packages coming into our country to hold back the flood of cheap and deadly fentanyl, a synthetic opioid manufactured in China and 50 times stronger than heroin. And in two weeks, I will be in China with President Xi, and I will mention this as a top priority. And he will do something about it. Very important that the president uh, talked about this. Uh, the far the poison that's coming in from foreign countries, particularly China, and he mentioned Mexico too. Um, let's not just get all carried away with the whole thing about uh, diversion of uh, you know drugs that are intended for other people, um, you know painkillers, Vicodin, and so on. A lot of the problem now, most of the problem indeed, is uh, is one of heroin and fentanyl, which were never prescribed by any doctor for anybody. And I'm glad he's getting on this. This is an important recommendation that I've made to them. And uh, if I can say that, and John Walters, former drugs, I know he's been very strong on this. Um, so good. Um, got to get after that foreign stuff. He's got to talk to China. And um, you want to just say something, you can put it however you want, Chris, but you had an interesting piece of information the other day from a friend of yours, I think, connected with intelligence. In our uh, Inside the Beltway conversations, uh, we have some friends in the intelligence agency, and they think there's pretty strong proof that some of this fentanyl coming from China is, uh, what's the correct way to put it, a state action, um, Mm -hmm. that the Chinese government may be complicit in the pushing and funneling of this fentanyl to the U.S., which, if true, is a huge deal. And so I think you know, President Trump is kind of hinting at that, um, but I think it's a great sign that he's actually going to bring this up with the president of China. No, it really is really is important and um, probably have to be very strong here. Cut number three about teaching young people. The fact is, if we can teach young people and people generally not to start, it's really, really easy not to take them. And I think that's going to end up being our most important thing. Really tough, really big, really great advertising. So we get to people before they start, so they don't have to go through the problems of what people are going through. Very important. Uh, You know, uh, once again, uh, I know there's going to be huge cries for huge sums of money for treatment. And, um, you know, I I understand why people do it, but recognize just how fallible it is, how frail a a, a leaf this is. Um, Most people get into this, don't get out. Uh, 15%, 20% success rate after three, four, five years. Don't get in it in the first place. That's what he's saying. Don't get in it. Just say no. Do whatever. The prevention programs uh, that have worked, again, I think uh, you can learn here from recent history. 
Uh, let's go to the next cut um, where he talks about, uh, again, other countries. Whether that country is China, whether it's a country in Latin America, it makes no difference. We're going to be working with all of them. We're taking the fight directly to the criminals in places that they're producing this poison. Here in America, we are once again enforcing the law, breaking up gangs and distribution networks, and arresting criminals who peddle dangerous drugs to our youth. He's right here about whether it's China or Latin America. He's right to talk about the wall. Um, but taking the fight directly to the criminals is exactly correct and hit the streets. Uh, get these guys who are walking around the cities and uh, towns of Manchester, New Hampshire, and Wheeling, West Virginia, and South Columbus, Ohio, and nail these guys um, and put them away. Um, these are the guys who are who are selling this stuff and poisoning people. Uh, my friend and, pre and successor, John Walters, says this is the greatest, uh, the biggest, the largest criminal enterprise, most murderous criminal enterprise in the history of the United States. Uh, this current poisoning of Americans, 60, 65,000 people a year. Final cut. Every person who buys illicit drugs here in America should know that they are risking their futures, their families, and even their lives. And every American should know that if they purchase illegal drugs, they are helping to finance some of the most violent, cruel, and ruthless organizations anywhere in the world. Illegal drug use is not a victimless crime. There is nothing admirable, positive, or socially desirable about it. There is nothing desirable about drugs. They're bad. We want the next generation of young Americans to know the blessings of a drug-free life. That's right. Um, you know, everybody who, uh, who partakes uh, is supporting uh, these bad guys these uh, violent, cruel, and ruthless organizations. Uh, nothing desirable, and um, stay away from it. The president was very moving, of course, in talking about his brother, Fred, alcoholism, and um, how it taught him a lesson, how Fred taught him a lesson. He never drank, never smoked. Good for the president. And he said Fred had a great personality, much better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I caught uh, that, Almost too. reverential. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, it was a great, it was a great little... Uh, line he had about his brother. A little there. side, yeah, yeah, I love his sides. You know, sometimes I just listen for the parentheses <laughs> of the president, um, and and good for him. Now I was watching TV this morning, uh, Fox and others, and there's something out there that we got to look out for. And everybody's saying, well, let's just get rid of all the stigmas, no judgment about people who are you know addicted. First, understand my position. I think people can get to a point with drugs or alcohol or other things where they are no longer in any control of themselves. No control. They've lost it. But I do think for most people, there is a space and a time where they are in control. And to say no judgment here, no stigma, is to take away one of the most effective and powerful incentives or disincentives for drugs which is the judgment of others. People say, you disappointed me. Your wife says, you've let us down. You've let these children down. Your employer says, you've screwed things up. You let this ha you let this fall through your hands. Very important. You either believe people are responsible moral agents up to a point, or you don't. And if you do, then you'll take this seriously. I read yesterday, Mrs. Bennett read to me, 
don't know if you guys saw this, uh, Chris. I don't know if you saw it about a, a couple in, I think, Iowa that uh, their baby was, four-month-old baby was found yeah. inside their apartment in a swing. Yeah. Uh, after four months. I will not describe what the description. Baby was dead, long dead. Um, and I'm going to tell you drugs are, will be in here somewhere. Drugs will be in this story somewhere. We've seen this this picture that's been all over the country. It's kind of a poster on this whole thing of uh, two adults in the front seat passed out from drugs, two children in car seats in the back crying. Uh, don't tell me that they're not responsible. President talked about uh, little babies, you know, uh, who are born. Opioid because, orphans. What's that? Opioid orphans. It was yeah, a great nice turn phrase. of phrase. Um, Powerful. Very evocative. Crying and screaming in pain and withdrawal. Yeah. Don't tell me there's no responsibility here on the part of parents. I can tell you want to say something, Chris. No, I, I just think that look at the stigma we've applied to cigarettes uh, within the past few years. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and so when we do this, use goes down. Cigarette use goes down. But when we let up, uh, when we try to destigmatize these things and make it culturally cool or acceptable, then use goes up. And you know this. Um. The last thing I want to mention is, um, I won't say I'm disappointed, I knew it wouldn't happen, but I wish somebody would say something about marijuana. I wish the president would. Uh, I know these public opinion polls now have 65% of the country in favor of legalization. While 65% of the country is wrong, 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 um, an interesting report came out that was, I think David Murray gave it to John Walters, who gave it to me. Um... There are uh, substance abuse and mental health services administration surveys Americans age 12 and older about whether they use uh, certain intoxicating substances. Opioid painkillers, marijuana, alcohol, cocaine, and where they used and what states use them. There's only one state that c- comes in the top 10 of states for all four. That is if you take uh, use of opioids, Marijuana, alcohol, cocaine, only one state is in the top 10 for all four, and that state would be Colorado. Gateway to gateway to gateway to gateway. People say, well, it doesn't matter, you know, and doesn't have any effect. Has a big effect. Um, maybe they'd still vote for legalization there, but I think they're starting to have second thoughts. What a shame. Why would, all right, forget the drug czar hat I used to wear, put on the education secretary hat I used to wear. Why would you, why would you want to make legal and more accessible and therefore give permission and approval to a drug like marijuana for young people, which decreases attention, focus, and memory? Attention, focus, and memory. Are they useful in school? I would think so. Well, you've all heard me on this before. I won't, I won't say more, but there you go. Stuff to think about, if you will, and I hope you will. Okay, let's get to this week's featured interviews. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, I promised another good interview. Here he is, Byron York, chief political correspondent for the Washington Examiner and a contributor to Fox News Channel. Byron, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bill. A dossier is a file kept on a person. Don't you like that we're using the word dossier, though? Isn't it kind of cool? I guess so. I've never had Not a just a do- file or a report. It's a dossier. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a dossier kept on me. Do you think? The other day I heard myself 
discussing the provenance of the dossier. Hey, thought, wow. wow. This is great. This will be a highfalutin podcast. I love that. It really will. Okay. All right. What is the do- You were, first of all, I'll tell the audience, they probably know it, but you were on this before anybody else, better than anybody else, and have come through with more than anyone else. Tell us what, what this dossier is about. Start at the beginning, if you will. Well, you know, the, the public first learned about this. In January of 2017, this year, Donald Trump is the president-elect, and the the heads of the um, intelligence agencies, the FBI, CIA, NSA, go to brief the president-elect on national security matters. And after that briefing, they append, at the end, a summary of a bunch of intelligence that has been collected by a former British spy who says that he has had a lot of uh, Russians connected to the Kremlin who have told him all sorts of salacious and sensational gossip about Donald Trump, some of it sexual in nature, most of it alleging that Trump world colluded with the Russians to uh, win the 2016 election. And that is what's called the dossier. There is a 35-page document. Anybody can read it on the web. BuzzFeed published it in full. And it was collected by a man named Christopher Steele, former um, British spy, who was retained by a company called Fusion GPS, made up of uh, former journalists, and who were being paid by the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign. And Steele had a lot of contacts in Russia, and uh, on assignment from the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign, he collects intelligence from uh, various people he knows, and uh, let me look this up. Uh, it, 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 the um, the dossier refers to the position of a lot of the sources. There'd be source A and source B and source C, and it identified source A, for example, as a quote senior Russian foreign ministry figure. It identified source B as a former top level Russian intelligence officer still active inside the Kremlin. It identified Source C as a senior Russian financial official. In other words, these are Russians connected with the Kremlin who are spreading dirt about Donald Trump to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Okay. Back to the beginning. Steele puts this stuff together. um, And our folks brief the president-elect, not the president, but the president-elect this before January by the way, they also briefed the president, President Obama okay, at the time, okay. this as well. Uh, how did they get the information? Did Steele give it to them, or how did they get it? Steele, uh, Christopher Steele, again, a former MI6 agent, uh, had actually worked with the FBI on what's called the FIFA investigation, FIFA being the world soccer organization that had a corruption sure. scandal a few years ago. And uh, Steele worked with the FBI on that. So the belief is that um, Steele, doing oppo research for the Clinton campaign and the DNC, 
approaches the FBI and said, hey, I've got some really hot stuff, and that the FBI takes him seriously because they had worked with him on the FIFA investigation. And it was reported in February of this year in the Washington Post. Byron, when when Steele's dossier uh, became known to government officials, what, FBI and others, uh, because they knew him from the past, um, did they know who paid for it? Good question. Uh, that's one of the things that is unknown. It's one of the things that Devin Nunes, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, has asked the FBI, and the FBI has refused to answer. Hmm. Um, and it is also one another question is, what, if anything, did the FBI do to try to verify or corroborate the claims inside the dossier. So all of this stuff is unknown, and it's not unknown because nobody's been asking. It's unknown because the FBI has uh, stonewalled all requests and subpoenas um, for information. Can they legitimately do that? Well, this is this is really interesting, and, and, and what we've seen this week is one of the most important developments in this whole investigation is the answer uh, was pretty much yes. And the reason that was yes is because of the particular situation of Devin Nunez. And we all know the, the Republican Chairman House Intel Committee, um, some left-leaning groups had raised an ethics complaint against him. And by left-leaning, I think it was moveon.org and crew and somebody else. Um, had lodged an ethics complaint with him, which ends up in the House Ethics Committee. So he is officially, quote, under investigation. Now, it's very, very likely that nothing is going to happen as a result of this investigation. But he was forced to come out and say, well, I'm going to step back from playing a leading role in the investigation, in the, in the, in the Trump-Russia investigation, while, while the House Ethics Committee does this. Well, um, that was widely interpreted as him having recused himself, which he says he actually did not do, and he remains the chairman of the committee and remains in charge of things. But um, he was definitely weakened by that, so that when he issued a subpoena to Fusion GPS, Fusion GPS's response was, forget it, you've recused yourself, you're weak, you can't do anything about this, we don't have to comply and the FBI, when he issued a subpoena to the FBI, the FBI didn't say it in as many words, but it was pretty much the same, um, same response. So it was pretty interesting. What, what we saw was, was that the FBI would not pay any attention to this subpoena unless it had the power of the House of Representatives behind it. If it was one rogue cowboy committee chairman, the FBI was just going to stonewall it forever. But if the House was behind Nunez, then maybe the FBI would have to work. And what happened a couple of days ago was that Paul Ryan came out, Speaker of the House, and said that he is behind the subpoena and the FBI has to comply with the subpoena, and he called it stonewalling. And amazingly enough, within hours of the Speaker of the House saying that, the FBI reached an agreement, they promise, uh, 
to um, to hand over the information within a few days. Okay. Not yet. That's how power works, you know? Yeah, yeah. Aristotle said power is the ability to be or to make things be. Yep. So they made things be. They did. We haven't seen it yet, though, right? No. Um, the uh, the promise is for um, next week. Okay. Now, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, and don't be modest, that the big revelation you broke was the link between Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC and the Trump dossier. Actually, that is that was a, a Washington Post story. And um, everybody... I knew who was investigating this believed that the funder of the dossier was going to be not just a supporter of Hillary Clinton, which had been widely reported, but could well be the Clinton campaign itself and a law firm called Perkins Coie, which is the Democratic Party's law firm. And darned if it didn't turn out to be true. So the Washington Post reported on Tuesday night that uh, it was indeed the DNC and the Clinton campaign that funded the dossier. And what we've been seeing since then is kind of a comic spectacle of everybody who was in power in those organizations saying they didn't know anything about it. I mean, this is astonishing. This is this big project, millions of dollars spent, millions. most sensational, possibly game-changing allegations against Donald Trump. And now nobody knows anything about it. Millions of dollars? Yeah, we think it was probably millions of dollars. We know that the mm -hmm. DNC paid Perkins Coie millions of dollars. We have to see how much of that went through to um, uh, went through to the the um, dossier project. All right. We have been hearing for months and months and months since the president's been elected or <clears throat> took office. Charges that the president uh, was elected because of Russian interference. Yeah. Is this symmetrical? <laughs> that is, is this just, the f I've heard people say the story's flipped. Um, well, it's, it's, it's close In what ways, to yes, in what ways, no? Well, uh, well, look at the two cases. I mean, um, the case that got Democrats so excited was this June 2016 meeting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in which uh, some Russians with connections to the Kremlin uh, get in touch with Donald Trump Jr., and they mm -hmm. entice him. They say they have dirt on Hillary Clinton. And he says, yeah, that's great. Let's meet and talk about it. And they never did. Uh, they, they never had the dirt. So they have the meeting, and it turns out they don't have any of this so-called dirt at all, and they just want to... Um, talk about easing U.S. sanctions on Russia. This is all about the Magnitsky right, Act. Right, right. And uh, meeting goes nowhere, ends really fast. And as far as we know, nothing else happened. So that was pointed to as evidence of collusion on the part of uh, the Trump campaign and the Russians, although some more discerning Democrats call it a willingness to collude as opposed to actual collusion. All right, so now what we have, on the other hand, is um, a foreign agent, the, the British spy, being paid by the Hillary Clinton campaign. 
and possibly, in turn, paying Russians connected to the Kremlin. Earlier I was talking about the descriptions of the sources in the dossier, all of whom are connected to the Russian government, uh, paying them for dirt on Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Now, this doesn't mean that Russia wasn't trying to influence the election or there was no campaign or there was, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't behind the DNC hack. It doesn't mean any of that. It means this is a much bigger, more complicated story. And the whole story that Democrats had been selling, that the Russians intervened to hurt Hillary and help Trump, is just not the story. It's bigger than that. It's more complex than that. And it appears that the Russians were trying to sow chaos and disorder wherever they went, which a number of observers, by the way, have said from the very beginning. Um, so it's just that sort of it's, it's Adam Schiff's version of this is not turning out to be what actually happened. They are saying, I saw Adam Schiff this morning, and I've listened to some other Democrats, they're saying this is a diversion from the true story, which is the first story, the story of the disinformation uh, by the Russians. Well, I think that there's something interesting going on here, and I wrote about this about a week ago, I think. I was detecting this change in tone in in the way that they're talking about this. And the change in tone is they're talking more about Russia and less about collusion. Uh, They're talking more about the active measures Russia took to try to disrupt our election, like the Facebook ads. They, They talked a lot about the Facebook ads, which don't seem to be a very big deal, but did exist. And there's, there's just no doubt that Russia was trying to disrupt and sow chaos in our election. And as a matter of fact, if the investigation had just been about those Russian measures without the accusation that Donald Trump colluded with those Russians to deny Hillary Clinton her rightful presidency, if the investigation had just been about those Russian measures, I think you'd have a large amount of bipartisanship and uh, cooperation, because uh, everyone agrees that's a bad thing. And we've got another election coming up next year, and we don't want Russians messing with it, and uh, we we don't want them propagandizing in it, and we certainly don't want them having anything to do with our voting technology. So if it had just been about that, I think we would have had a very extensive and bipartisan investigation. But we all know it wasn't about that, because... Democrats have been blaming Trump and accusing him and his campaign of cooperating, conspiring, and colluding with Russians. Is what happened illegal, or what would have had to happen to make it illegal on this on this uh, dossier side? I don't know. Um, okay. You know, I this is one of these things you you immediate people immediately jump in and they say, "Well, this breaks the campaign finance laws, or this violates okay. this, or violates that." Um, I think we're in a situation where we really need to find out what happened and the public needs the most information possible. So I think that's sometimes okay. best done in a, in a, in a, in a way that, without prosecution. Okay, I'm, I'm going back in my memory. If I'm on a, uh, in the wrong place here, let me know. But I, I'm back to the meeting between Comey and Trump. January of 2017, before Trump is sworn in, yes. Comey informs Trump of the dossier. Yeah. Actually, there's a funny scene in which all of the um, the intelligence chiefs 
Comey and Clapper and uh, Brennan and Rogers, you know, the CIA, NSA, FBI, all of those groups. They, uh, they're talking before this briefing, right? And the, they're, they're going to brief him about all sorts of national security things. And then they say, well, we've got to tell him about the dossier. And who, who's going to do it? <laughs> Nobody wants to do it. And they decide that Comey, who's, who, who had a 10-year term, yeah. uh, should do it. Because Comey was going to be in office after Longest Trump term. took office. And these yeah. other guys were going to be leaving office. Safest, yeah. It was done face-to-face, one-on-one, apparently, uh, by Comey to mm-hmm. Trump. Is this, was this the same meeting where Comey said, you're not subject of an investigation? I believe that was one of them. Um, there, were, there, there were three such examples in which okay. um, right. yeah, well, Comey said that. assured right, Trump right. that he personally three was not times. under investigation. Right, yeah. like in, three the, times, like in the Bible, yeah. three times, yeah. Um. What do we need to find out that we don't know that would kind of, you know, help seal this case one way or the other? Well, I think um, the biggest, you know, the, the biggest speculation you hear from Republicans who are skeptical about all of this stuff is that the dossier is kind of like a Rosetta Stone of the whole investigation. That without this dossier, maybe you don't have the whole thing. And I don't think that's entirely true because... Obviously, the FBI knew about, for example, Paul Manafort's business dealings in Ukraine long before the investigation, this investigation started. But we really need to know what the FBI did with the dossier, because the the sort of radioactive um, allegation from Republicans is that we know the FBI uh, has done wiretapping in relation to this investigation. And to wiretap an American, as they apparently have done, uh, in the case of at least Carter Page and Manafort, you got to go to a court, the special, we've all heard about this special FISA court, mm-hmm. Foreign Intelligence mm-hmm. Surveillance mm-hmm. Act court, yep. and you apply for a warrant. And you have to make a case. You have to present evidence to this judge of why you should be allowed to wiretap this person. And so the question that struck people almost immediately when the do- when they learned that the FBI had taken up the dossier is, did the FBI use this dossier, which the director has called salacious and un- unverified, did the FBI use this dossier as evidence in applications for surveillance warrants? In other words, is this whole thing kind of built on a rotten foundation? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's one of the questions that it's not just Devin Nunez. The, the Senate Judiciary Committee has uh, been asking this to the FBI for a long time. Lindsey Graham, who's a member of the committee, and Charles Grassley, the chairman, wrote, about, wrote the FBI months ago. The FBI has totally stonewalled them on this. And that's a question that has to be answered. I see. Okay. All right. Well, fascinating. Uh, Chris Beach has been fascinated by this and totally taken with everything you've written. I want to give Chris a chance <laughs> to, uh, to ask a question before we let you go. Chris, go ahead. It, Byron, if you, <clears throat> it's just remarkable. If you put all the pieces together, connect Hillary to the DNC, to the dossier, to the FBI, uh, this is, I mean, unprecedented in American history if these connections and links that you're talking about are true in terms of 
you know, maybe not intentional or not, but corruption and outside influence in an election to take down a candidate? Well, some of them, I think, are now, we can say they are true. And I, I'm not sure, it, it, it all sounds really deep statey. Right. But, um, uh, listen, we had we had uh, an FBI that was headed by J. Edgar Hoover for a million years. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that any of this stuff is unprecedented, but it's very, very serious. And... Um, what happened with these these allegations of, of election tampering, essentially, uh, is that it became criminalized, and we have a number of people who are in criminal jeopardy um, because of this. We have this huge, incredibly divisive um, investigation going on. We have some media outlets who just talk about it constantly. Um, we need answers about this, and we need public answers about this. And it is fine if you want to prosecute Paul Manafort for some sort of shady business dealings 10 years ago in the Ukraine. That is totally fine with me. I don't mind. But the public needs to know, as far as the election is concerned, what happened here. And uh, all of this stuff we were talking about with the dossier, the FBI, and all that stuff, um, it's part of this election. It's part of the case that uh, the election is somehow invalid, and we need to know what happened. All right. Well, stay tuned. We will stay tuned. You stay on the case. Good Lord. Thank you, guys. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Byron. Thank you very, very much. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, folks. It's now time for conversation with one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. His name is David Galerter. Uh, he's an artist, he's a writer, he's a professor of computer science at Yale University, and he's the inventor of Life Streams, which was the first social network. His latest book, which came out in 2016, is called The Tides of Mind, Uncovering the Spectrum of Consciousness. Good morning, David. How are you? Uh, good, thanks. It's always an honor and a pleasure to talk uh, to talk to you. Thank you very much. Well, tell us, uh, let's jump jump right in. How's Donald Trump faring at Yale these days? <laughs> the, uh, he, uh, obviously, people hate his guts, but um, he, he emphasizes <laughs> okay. not that only puts, the... That puts uh, it squarely. Okay. Uh, not, not only the uh, emotional uh, uh, tantrums that the left is prone to, but their blindness, because we are stuck in an amazing piece of symmetry. There is so much resemblance between Obama on the left and Trump in a different way on the right, and the, the academic world, the elite, doesn't see any of it. They're completely, uh, it's completely obscure to them what's going on in this country. They are too biased to see, to understand. So, explain amazing. the symmetry. Explain the symmetry first. People, people find Trump, people on the left find Trump not merely objectionable on principle, but they hate him as a person. They find him grating and annoying, and uh, he, uh, he drives them crazy. I understand that. He often drives me crazy. Um, Obama had the same properties. People on the right, and I think in the middle, found him not only objectionable, in terms of what he did, but he was such a pain. He was, uh, I, don't, I think there's nothing worse than a combination of patronizing arrogance and insincerity. 
whenever he opened his mouth, uh, your your stomach turned over. It was painful to hear him talk. Now I understand that people, uh, my friends on the on the left, have the same reaction to Trump. But but the remarkable thing is 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 what this says about the way the country swings, and uh, why did we elect Trump? The the left and uh, academia is too busy hating him to ask why their countrymen were. Yeah. The, the American people know perfectly well what is due to the office of the presidency. Uh, I think Trump is undignified in a lot of ways. I think he falls short in a lot of ways. And that's absolutely as clear to a farmer in Alabama or, or, or a cowboy in Wyoming as it is to the Washington Post. People were driven to elect Trump not because they deemed him a, a perfect candidate to be president, but because they were angry, they were incensed, they couldn't stand where the country was going, and uh, the analysis that should follow upon that isn't there. I mean, it goes on uh, in conservative circles, but it ought to be the number one topic in the study of government and the study of American history all over the world. And it's not, of course, needless to say. Very interesting. Very interesting. I find myself as a a guy who supported Trump during the campaign. I won't put you in a spot, but I believe you did too, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and we had thought of writing a piece. Maybe it's the time to write that piece now. Not um, a bad idea. uh, I, 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 I remain absolutely a supporter and a sympathizer of Trump. And there, you know, no, no president ticks every box. And, uh, I think his, his, his virtues far outweigh his faults. I do wish he would take the, 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 the office and the history of the office more seriously than he does. But. No, he is who he is, and he's 70 years yeah. old. He's, he's, he's not going to change. Here's what I say, and I just would love your comment uh, on it. And, you know, I travel in some of the same circles that you do, but I'm not as surrounded as you are uh, at Yale University. Surrounded are, is, yeah, besieged. Besieged. I mean, I'm in Montgomery County, Maryland, and there are people, lots of yard signs still up in our neighborhood that say Clinton Kane. I mean, they're still, they're still up. <laughs> right, but at least you've got a, you know, a convenient corridor to uh to a sane more or less sane part of the country (laughs) and whereas i'm stuck in the middle of lunaticsville all right we'll get into that anyway in my discussions and sometimes it's possible though i have never seen this kind of uh, hatred before i guess jimmy carter said the same thing he thought that the press was the hardest interesting yeah interesting comment same time republican senators were blasting him here's what i say um, I, I say, look, I'll give you four reasons right now. He said he was going to destroy ISIS. Looks like he's destroying ISIS. He said yeah. that uh, he was going to do something about the border. And my gosh, the rhetorical wall seems to be working very effectively. You know, the a, border crosses right, down. Right, and that's 60, the main point, 70%. really. Said he'd get the economy moving. The economy seems to be moving. Absolutely. And then during the campaign, I said a necessary and sufficient condition, as far as I'm concerned, is a great conservative appointment to the court. And we've already got that now. That's four. Now, let me just tell you, when I said this the other day to a friend, uh, maybe a mutual friend, uh, Andy McCarthy, you know who Andy is. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Andy said, look, look, Trump accomplished 70% of what he will ever accomplish the night of the election uh, simply by winning. 
you know, it, it kept us from this downward path. This, this, right. this the, I, the decline. A lot in that. So, what do you think? That's my that's my quick kind of quick summary. Not bad for campaign promises and delivering. Yes, more needs to be done, legislation, et cetera, et cetera. But pretty good. Yeah, he's. He, I, it isn't. It, it isn't. Uh, fair to neglect what he actually has done as president, a lot of which is 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 in uh, the regulatory area and yep, yep. Uh, taking major steps to suppress and squash this uh, this deadly virus that was killing us. But I think, and still is, but I, there there's a lot in in that, and just the fact of of getting elected was uh, was an extraordinary accomplishment. I mean, you could say. It was the most uh, uh, culturally democratic moment in the history of the world. Never before Interesting. has a great power uh, spurned everything the elite, the, acad- the intellectual and the social elite knows, left and right, about who should be running the country. Uh, never before has a, has a great power said the hell with that. Um, uh, the dignity of the country is important and has a lot to do with the power of the country, but this is an emergency and we're going to make use of the best, uh, the best candidate who's out there. And, um, the implications are enormous. Uh, the fact that the, the, the left believes that since it refuses to report on the right, that the right doesn't really exist, that it's just, you know, a bunch of, 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 of un, uncollected uh, morons with with no serious thought. Well, we 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 all know this, but we've reached a point where the left's blindness is uh, is aiding, I think, the collapse of the intellectual structure built up since uh, since the rise of Marxism. And this is after after all the hundredth anniversary of the of the Great Soviet Revolution and. Uh, Things are things are not looking up for the left. Yeah, but the left seem- is too self-satisfied, too complacent, too arrogant, too patronizing to notice it or think about it or do anything about it. I hope. Uh, I was going to say inert, inept, uh, unable to act. Um, goodness, I mean, all I can do is say no. All, all I can really, really say in its gut, viscerally, comes out and word no, and we're opposed. Is uh, you know we hate him. We hate him. We hate everything he stands for. <laughs> it's not really. I mean, you, you have a party whose successive leaders in the Senate have been Reed and Schumer. I mean, look at those two men, and say, you know, these. these it, it, it's not as if Republican leaders, although Paul Ryan is an exception, are are exciting thinkers. But uh, Reed had so little to say; it was almost inconceivable who could follow him on that downward trajectory. But Schumer does. I mean, these are people with uh, don't even claim to have an agenda aside from hatred, aside what? from contempt. Their agenda is contempt for conservatism and, by extension, for the country at large. And Obama, at least, was above boards about his contempt for the country. He didn't. Yeah. He didn't beat around the bush. He yeah. more or less did and said what he felt. Let me, do you know my Schu- you know my Schumer story. No, I don't or, think well, so. this was an, when I was a professor, well, not a professor, but I was a tutor in social studies at uh, at uh, Harvard when I was in law school. Yeah, and Charles Schumer was a student, and he submitted his senior thesis, 
and I graded him, and I gave him a, uh, I think, a B plus or an A minus. And he complained bitterly because this kept him from being, I think it was uh, summa cum laude. And all, all it gave him was magna cum laude. <laughs> that was a historic total. achievement that you racked up just, to, you know, sort of as a footnote in your ordinary duties. He complained. He whined. He came back to see me. I reread it. I just didn't change the grade, but he kept whining and complaining. That's, that's <laughs> funny enough, but go fast forward 30 years. And at my first hearing at which Senator Schumer appeared, first damn thing he brought up, he never got over it. You know, David, that he is never amazing. got over that it. That is amazing. Yeah, isn't that funny? It's funny, funny you story. know, there's, there's something about, and I have to say, to be fair, I thought of this first in connection with John Sununu, who was not my favorite among conservatives. But when, when, when Sununu... Uh, Joined the Bush administration, all over the newspapers were the fact that his SAT scores were something or other. He had fantastically high SAT scores, oh, yeah, and it yeah. struck me at that point that 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 a grown, mature, enormously successful man who's still talking about the grades he got as a college student is uh, there's something wrong. Well, <laughs> uh, there's something wrong there. And with Schumer, I don't want to attack Sununu, but with Schumer, you know, it's obvious and it's remarkable. How many people choose the verb wine? I mean, it's not, it's, a, it's yeah. a fairly uncommon verb. And yet people across the country, I think across the world, world, just say, this guy, why is this guy wine constantly? There's something about him. That's I'm funny. sorry, That's we've got funny. a noisy bird. I'll have to relocate. Uh, We're talking to David Galerner, a professor of computer science at Yale, uh, about uh, Donald Trump and opposition to Trump. John Sununu was a pretty good friend of mine. He's also my boss. He's the guy I had to uh, I, I, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't but, no, 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 no. It's fine. But I remember the spat, and I remember the Washington Post, and then the Washingtonian Magazine, and others, you know, noticed this and, and were so offended. This will make you like Sununu just a little better, I think, <laughs> uh, that they came out with articles, 25 people smarter than John Sununu, you know, <laughs> and they were, of course, all liberals, you know, that they listed, you know, he's not the smartest guy in Washington. Yeah, of course, but that kind of piece is, is, is an order of magnitude yeah. more childish and offensive than anything Sununu ever said. So, All right, tell me where this goes. Where do you think this goes? You could either talk about the lens, the emotions, the... The uh, the attitude of the left here, where, where that goes, what it, what it ends up being, does it bring down the elites? Uh, and what, by the way, it's not just the left, the establishment of the Republican Party. I mean, you you know what happened recently. You saw that with Senators Flake and Senator Corker right. and so on. Uh, where where does that go? And then where does the Trump presidency go? Do you predict this will be a successful presidency? I think it is succeeding uh, under our noses before our eyes. Uh, in, a, in an immensely hostile cultural environment, and even in a way a hostile congressional environment relative to what it ought to be for sure. a Republican president, sure. um, he's, he's getting a tremendous lot done. I mean, he's turned the political culture upside down. He's, uh, he's set the left back on its heels. And um, I, I think his supporters see that he's doing just what he promised, um, he's, uh, no matter how, uh, grating and abrasive he might be personally, uh, like virtually the whole country, I wish somebody would turn off his Twitter system. I mean, I know I see uh, an occasional good thing come out of that, but all sorts of damage. But nonetheless, he's done what he said he would do. He, yeah. He's delivered. Yeah. I don't see how he could 
fail to get more support in the next election than he did in the last. Wow. Uh, I think he's a two-term president, and uh, I think he'll be remembered as uh, as as uh, as an as a clear success. Um, a guy who who took on the entire establishment and uh, made a remarkable amount of progress considering uh, the environment in which he's, he's operating. Made the world take him seriously, and that, that in itself is a huge personal accomplishment. All right, as a, you are a student of the left, uh, you're surrounded by the left, besieged. Unfortunately, I am, yeah. So what happens to them? Do they give up? Do they surrender? Does this go on? You know, you said he's a two-term president. Are we going to have two years of this agony? Apparently, there's an event scheduled for the anniversary of the election. Do you hear about that? People are going to go outside and, I don't know, howl at the moon or something? Uh, you know, shake their fists at the stars. Well, that should be useful, and I look <laughs> forward. Um, <laughs> it should be useful, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, what, 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 will it subside? Will people accept? Will it go deeper? Uh, well, you know, I, I can't help but think that we're still a grossly unbalanced culture. I'm a big fan of Fox News, where... Um, I'd love to see more of you, and always happy when when I do see you on cable news anywhere. Um, but I think Fox News, on the whole, does a great job, and there are other um, conservative institutions, magazines especially, that are doing uh, wonderful work. But why is there no second Fox News? I mean, Fox has been a huge success for for decades, and it's time now for a conservative network to uh, make an attempt at YouTube. YouTube is more and more widely seen and used, has potentially lowered the overhead in creating a new TV operation all the way down. Um, if uh, Conservative culture still doesn't reach enough people and still doesn't... Uh, still doesn't give enough voices, still doesn't huh. give enough expression huh. to a wide enough... Uh, uh, range. Uh, it doesn't doesn't have enough uh, cultural coverage. It doesn't have enough coverage of foreign affairs. There is all sorts of room for more conservative reporting. This is an environment in which we're going to see that, and I just have to believe that we're going to see at least a gradual expansion in the range of choices in conservative journalism and conservative discussion, conversation in general. I mean, I've been, I've been waiting for the conservative university that you and I have discussed yeah, so many yeah, times. Yeah. I've been waiting for a decade and a decade and a half, or whatever. The tools are all there. Uh, the money is there. The, the think tanks, certainly the, 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 the minds and the, above all, the demand the demand is huge, and uh, it's been frustrating, but I, I'm sure we will see that. The emergence of conservative schools originally uh, to start out on the Internet, and the emergence of more conservative news outlets, and TV is the king of them all. And, and, and okay. we're going we're to see new technology, I think, being put, into, being put to use, I hope, soon and before the end of the first Trump term, and certainly by the end of the second Trump term. So we go on you, in a slightly sir. different atmosphere. I think the country will be slightly better informed about what's actually happening in Washington. Um, one Fox is good, and two Foxes will be better. Okay. And uh, I, I think that's important. It's not just a matter of somebody making a uh, billion dollars and 
a, a new generation of anchors and anchoresses getting to uh, right. Uh, right. you know run their own shows. We we need to act like a legitimate part of the culture, not like a footnote, okay. not like um, a special case or an exception, but uh, like what we are, which is half of the United States cultural picture. Uh, far more than half of the, uh, okay. of, the, of the intelligence and the wisdom and the experience and the historical knowledge of this country, far more than half of the genuine leaders, uh, both politically and intellectually, we need to be speaking more. We need to be addressing our, our countrymen more than we are. I don't mean we in the sense that I'm you know, uh, part of this group that is going to go ahead and found the new organization, but I mean the leadership, the conservative movement in general, conservative leadership has a lot more to say than is reaching the public okay. at large. They need to speak over a, over a broader, wider range of channels, network channels in the broad sense, and I think it'll happen. I hope it will happen. All right. Well, if you're involved in it, let me partner with you. You know I'm always happy to work with you. Well, I'd let love to do it. Somebody is going to do it. Okay. Um, let it's me... got to happen. It let, really me ask does. You, let me ask you another thing, because you're on the cutting edge of so many things, and at risk of not understanding what your what your answer is, I'm going to do it anyway. I've been reading up a little that. bit, a little bit, on uh, artificial intelligence and the debate that's going on about it. And uh, you know, uh, do we do, are these machines going to run our lives, or are they going to destroy the country and jobs? What what about artificial intelligence? How how big a thing is it? And how serious a thing is it? And is it a threat to uh, America and Americans? Um, it's not a threat to America insofar as we, we invented it and we dominated it as a field. And the whole world sends its smartest students here to our universities to study these topics. And uh, many or most of them stay on and are welcome, certainly uh, in the academic community and the research community. Um, it is, it, it, it's, it's true, on the other hand, that most of the people building this technology are, of course, just technologists, engineers, scientists. Their interests don't include uh, political or cultural issues. I mean, after all, they have jobs to do, and they're, and they're doing them. But it is... Um, it's crazy for the country at large not to take more of an interest in this, not to say we want to know what's going on. We don't just want to see crazy headlines about, about the next sex robot. I mean, we need to know what you're actually doing. What is the state of the art? How long is it going to be before we see these, uh, these human-like robots? Now, in fact, AI is in a huge amount of intellectual trouble because it has no concept of how to deal with emotion, and emotion is, is half of the human intellect. But it's always been the tendency of, of the scientific and engineering community to uh, to diminish uh, uh, the role of uh, emotion. I mean, since Descartes, uh, the the community of philosophers and scientists has been uneasy and uncomfortable in the world of emotion, and yep. that is a temporary fatal flaw. However, that that's not a limitation that applies to the entire field, and it will be overcome as other. You know, shortcomings, short-sighted views are. At the moment, it gives us a little breathing space because the mainstream of AI doesn't really know what it's doing. 
but but that's not going to go on forever, and we should be using that breathing space to have a national conversation. I mean, yeah, you know, everybody in the world wants to have a national conversation. There probably never has been a national conversation, but we right. ought to have right. more thoughtful treatment of, more thoughtful discussion of where AI is going, what it's capable of now, what it will be capable of, ten, of in 10 years, and in 50 years. After all, Alan Turing, in 1950, wrote the paper that, in a sense, launched the field of artificial intelligence. And in that paper, he recorded his predictions for 50 years into the future for what, what the state of the art would be in 2000, which requires enormous uh, intellectual courage and integrity to put yourself down on paper. And he was largely right in what he said. But we need that same kind of boldness, uh, willingness, willingness to talk seriously about where we're going. Not okay. just in terms of Hollywood headlines and nonsense, but in terms of where things really stand. Uh, the country has done well so far by saying uh, technology will just uh, make life, life easier, will we'll make us richer. We don't have to worry about it. We can leave that to uh, Chinese graduate students, and we don't have to dirty our hands or mess around with it. Um, that's not going to hold. I think that's a foolish okay. approach. Right. It's, it, it's largely the fault of the educational establishment, which refuses to require students to learn a minimum about science and mathematics and engineering, uh, because it doesn't want to teach them those things. It doesn't want to hire people yeah, to teach them those things. Correct. But uh, if that doesn't change, we will. It's not going to destroy the country, but uh, there will be consequences that could have been avoided if we had all woken up, paid attention, thought about it, discussed it, and understood it, taken the time to understand it. But you're not, again, here's the sim my simple-minded question, you're not worried about Hal and 2001 Space Odyssey or... Uh, no, no, because in the, in the final so. analysis, you can't do these things. It's not possible for a, for a, a mad technologist to go off in a shack by himself or even a hundred or a thousand of them. Uh, to do these large projects, you've got to, there is an interface with the world in general, uh, which is providing the funding and, and the lab space and the students. You, you can't be as out of touch as, as most of these guys would like to be. So, you know, and there will be reporters and there will be deans and stuff like that. So you'll never be able to shake off the rider of, uh, you know, general culture. You may be a mad horse or a, or a bucking bronco, but the, the public will still be with you in some sense. You can't get rid of them, thank God. And so yeah, the, the, the public in the final analysis is going to be a check on the, on the, on the most but, idiotic ideas of the AI people. Right. And they do have profoundly idiotic ideas but, but the, immortality by by okay. by uploading yeah. uh, your brain state to the web or some all right but forget like that. that what about what about just the, I, I think of uh, charles Krauthammer's column where he talked about the the chess game you know and watson and said you know concluded it by saying you know be afraid be very afraid it's now that now now these uh, these computers can beat anybody and can beat 50 at a time and they could even beat the chinese game what's that Call chance or so I can't remember. Yeah, go right. Yeah, um, not if not to be. No, no one has more respect for Krauthammer than I. Uh, brilliant guy, a wonderful guy too. But um, I think afraid is is absolutely the wrong adjective. Okay. Uh, we should be fascinated. We should be. We should be demanding. 
we should say we we want to we want to be briefed by you guys. We want we want you to explain in actual English what it is you're doing and what you're trying to do. In fact, the the NSF should give nobody any money uh, unless the lab group addresses not only its fellow scientists but the American public. It should be a requirement of getting a single dollar for getting a single dollar of federal funding that you publish an op-ed in some uh, you know reputable newspaper once a year. This kind of communication has to happen. It's not that we should be afraid. It's that we should assert our natural intelligence. It's not as if the, the public is, is going to be victimized, is too weak or is too uh, uh, lacking in resources to control the world of AI. It will easily be controlled, just as we've controlled the world of nuclear power and of nuclear weapons which is one of the most remarkable and, and under-considered success stories in human history. No one, uh, after the bombing of Nagasaki, would have, been, would have predicted that, that no further nuclear bombs would be used in wartime as of well into the 21st century. No one would have dared make such a prediction. Yeah, and yet we showed ourselves able to control the technology, and we will be well able to control AI, but not by being afraid, by paying attention All right. and allowing we, our natural curiosity to, I mean, this stuff is fascinating, uh, as well as ha- being potentially dangerous, but this is a study of the human mind. The human mind has always been near the top of, uh, of natural subjects of curiosity among human beings. Give rein to our natural curiosity, and the public will know what's going on in the AI world, and we won't have to be afraid. No right. fear will be necessary or is called for. Right. Just, I'm just, I'm just I'm curatorship and, 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 and the serious attention that adults pay to highly intelligent children. All right. I'm thinking of the uh, uh, congruence of your advice uh, and the advice of uh, my favorite recent pope, John Paul, who, when I met him, said, and put his extraordinary hand, man hand on my head and said, "Be not afraid. Be not afraid." Right. That's what the angel said. You know, be not afraid. Absolutely. Uh, David, we we promised to let you go. We'd love to talk to you forever, but we'll talk to you again. Uh, your students are lucky to have you, and we thank you very much. Well, the podcast world is lucky that I'm delighted that you that you moved into this area. There, of course, there's tremendous interest and. In, you know the, the young people are becoming ever more addicted to uh, podcasting. It's using me anyway, so it's great. We to- hope so. We hope so. This will help. Thank you. My Bye-bye. pleasure. All right, that's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Keep spreading the word, would you, about the Bill Bennett Show? Talk to you next week.